1: We all have a linear mindset, which means we tend to think tomorrow and the next day and next week and next month and next year will look like last year. But of course, we're living during a time of greatest change.
0: Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with Peter Diamandis, founder of the XPRIZE Foundation and author of several books including Bold and Abundance, both uh, recommended reading if you're into futurology. You should listen to this episode if you want to hear some crazy and very possible futurology predictions such as living 500 years, colonizing space, advances in AI and human achievement, how society will need to evolve to respond to increased automation and artificial intelligence, as well as how we can make ourselves more competitive in the long and short term, and something called linear thinking, and why this type of thinking and mindset causes us to miss the mark when we think about technology, innovation, and the advancement of the human race. We're glad to have you here with us today at AOC, so enjoy this episode with Peter Diamandis. Oh, and by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox, that's where we discuss things like reading body language, nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, mentorship, influence, persuasion tactics, everything that we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the US, you can text charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Peter Diamandis. Well, one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because I found that you're in kind of an interesting in-between space where you're building the XPRIZE with millionaires, billionaires, you're giving up what seems like a really nice place of living in kind of an apartment just to make it happen, not caring, going back almost into student mode in yeah. a lot of ways, and then creating the XPRIZE with the goal of private space flight. And then you've got a lot of sacrifices, a little bit of luck, but probably not as much as some people would uh right, would as imply. I would have wanted. Right. Yeah, not as much as you would have wanted for sure. And I think there are lessons there. And I think you created space for allowing something like the X Prize to actually happen. Not that it happened without you, but that you made it happen in a way that resulted from hustle and grind, but also because you were willing to kind of do Whatever pretty much anything
1: yeah. to, to get there. Do you really want to live more than five hundred years? Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was in medical school, I remember looking at the body in a very different fashion. There was a TV show that was on that was talking about the notion that certain life forms, turtles, whales, sharks, lived hundreds of years, as long, theoretically, as 700 years. The question asked was, if they can, why can't I? Then in medical school, I realized, you know, it really is a hardware-software problem. yeah. And I think that we are going to learn how to extend the human lifespan indefinitely. And so I picked a ridiculous number of 700 years because that's how long the longest, you know, large life form is supposedly living. And of course, if you can live 200 years now, you can live forever. So, but it's something I do desire. And I think we're live now during the most exciting time ever in human history. We're gonna see the universe. We're gonna understand the foundations of physics. You know, we're gonna transform what it means to be human, and it's all happening now. And I think it's happening in the next 30, 40 years. But yeah, I'd like to live longer than that. Is it because you wanna see the results of your work or your curiosity? It's curiosity. It's all about every year is much more fascinating than last. I don't know why. I guess if you are sick and ill and tired and you don't wanna go on, but if you have your health, And if you can be vibrant and your mind can be alive and learning, why wouldn't you want to continue? I think so, part of it is having a healthy, extended human lifespan. It's not just about living old. Right, it's not about being
0: 80 for six of your 700 years or or an 80-year-old physical condition. So you're watching your kid, you're watching the moon landing, you're enthralled, you tell your mom you wanna be an astronaut, and she says you gotta follow your dad and be a doctor, well, was she disappointed when you became a multimillionaire
1: entrepreneur instead? <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, it's my parents grew up in a small island in Greece called the island of Lesbos in a small town of Mytilene and, you know, where my dad went from his small oceanside town to become a New York physician was this massive leap forward and it was like, you know, just a completely different orders of magnitude different life and being a physician was for them, like the highest possible calling in terms of financial security, in terms of helping people, in terms of knowledge. And so they wanted the best that they knew for me. And my dad had built an OBGYN practice. Uh, you know, he delivered some 30,000 kids during his career. I remember having fun doing those calculations with him. Anyway, long story short, that's what they knew. But my passion wasn't there. My passion was space. And so there was an ongoing argument always about, will I become a doctor? Will I become an astronaut? And after I graduated medical school, and I never went and did my internship or residency, my mom would say, would be two questions. One, are you married yet? <laughs> right, <laughs> have you course. found your wife yet? You know, it's like every mom asks, You know, it's not too late for you to go and practice. So ultimately, I didn't, I followed my dreams, and I'm thankful for it, and uh, no, they've been proud of me. Sure, do you have any advice for people who find themselves in the wrong career, or think maybe they're going into the wrong career, they have yeah, a different passion? Absolutely. So I'm very clear, and I do this with all my graduate students at Singularity University, everybody who's in my Abundance 360 community, people who follow me in any way, shape, or form. It's like you have to live a passion and purpose driven life. Because if you can, why would you not want to? And so a lot of people just don't understand what their passion or purpose is. And that's the hard part, you know. And I'm amazed at even in an organization or as a group as highly selected and as academically achieved as the Singularity University Global Solutions Program, our graduate program, of the 80 students who enter out of 4,000, 5,000 applicants, half of them, when I ask, how many of you here know exactly your purpose and mission in life is? Half raise their hands and half don't, which really blows me away, right? They've been pursuing excellence, they've been pursuing knowledge, they've been pursuing more doing without knowing why. And so I say, you know, listen, your job here during this 10-week program is to figure out what is your calling in life. And, you know, my advice to those listening to us here is if you don't know what it is, it is your calling in life that's so critical for you to find. And a couple of tricks for you to think about is what did you want to do as a kid, right? What was it that the 9 or 10 or 12-year-old version of you loved to do? That maybe we're told, no, there's no career there, which is bullshit. There's a career in anything. Or you can't make a living that way, or that's not possible for you, whatever the case might be. So what did you want to do as a kid is one strong signal, one strong indicator of what your passion might be. Another is if I were to give you a billion dollars and say, go make the world a better place. Don't have to worry about income. You've got the money to make a difference. What do you want to do? Do you want to go cure a disease? Do you want to go teach people? Do you want to go build art museums? What do you want to do? You can find some kind of a signal in the noise sure. for your passion there. Do you think it's self-serving that if I had a billion dollars, I'd be
0: doing something like this, but maybe with nicer equipment?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a matter of, I think you'd be thinking more about what reach you want. One of the things that's amazing today is that reach is possible. And you know you do have state-of-the-art equipment. And... What you're doing today right in this very moment and the reach that you have would have cost orders of magnitude more 10 years ago and orders of magnitude more 10 years before that, and would have been impossible 10 years before that. Sure, yeah, we would have been lugging this in on a truck and setting it up in a room with reel-to-reel going. It
0: is amazing, the pace that that things have made, and I was reading the book, the experiments that you did when you were a kid, disassembling toys, stockpiling chemicals, launching Estes (laughs) rockets, I just saw a lot of myself in there. The only problem I had with those rockets is that whenever it launched, the parachute would melt. <laughs> that was the problem I always you didn't have had. enough wadding in there. I know. It was always the wadding. You know, I skimped on the wadding, but that's <laughs> what I, I knew it. Some of the things you did when you were young makes me scared to have kids as well. Cause I'm thinking the stockpiling of the explosives. I mean, talk about a no fly list or worse at this point. Do you think your kids, are they going to start driving you crazy with their pursuits? How,
1: how well, much are you going to Well, So help me it's into interesting, that? right? Cause I have two five year old boys and they're already great experimentalists. And it's like, what experiment are we going to do today? And it's like, oh my goodness. It's like, I can just see where it's going to go. It's only a matter of and time. It's only a matter of time. And but the beautiful thing about it today is we can do different kinds of experiments. You know, I used to, when I was a kid, and Julian Guthrie writes in How to Make a Spaceship, my stories of my best friend Billy Greenberg and I would order chemicals from chemical supply companies. I mean, we'd get huge boxes of potassium perchlorate and potassium nitrate and magnesium and sulfur and charcoal and manganese and, and just all these chemicals that you know were are explosives. We'd make our own explosives, our own rocket fuel, our own m 80s um, and you know we blew up all kinds of things, including my friend's swimming pool. But of course, you'd be tracked down as a terrorist. Yeah, you can't even order that stuff now. Uh, You can't, right? Even today's high school chemistry labs are so watered down as to be laughable. But we can do experiments with other things, right? We can build things on tablets and run experiments in the virtual world. We can create robots. You know, my kids' Lego sets are incredible, and so it's fun to see how we can experiment. We can three D print stuff. I saw a three D printer in the lobby. Yeah, we've got two three D printers from three D
0: Systems here. To have it in the lobby is a almost artistic statement of we're so casual with creating things. This is what we have in our lobby. This I don't know how much those things cost, but they're pretty pro level. Yeah, imagine they're pro level
1: three printers. Yeah.
0: More than the house I grew up in, I would imagine. <laughs> On that note, people do say, oh, you know, we're heading to hell in a handbasket or whatever the uh, old timers like to say, these luddites. We see a lot of bad news. Do you agree with this or do you see technology as offering a true solution to existential problems like global warming and education and poverty and things like that?
1: Well, yeah, I think the world's going to end. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, I read a different book than you. <laughs> and this is all chronicled in my first book sure. called Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. And I gave a TED Talk in 2011, 2012, when the book was launched. And one of the things I realized is that we as humans are genetically selected to see the bad news. And what that means is we see problems way in advance. It's like. We see the potential for a problem and then we make it a real problem and it could be years or decades before it actually hits us. I see the problems and we advance them in our mind to the point of, oh my God, it's a crisis, we're going to deal with it right now. But the fact of the matter is, even as we go forward in time and we encounter the problem, we forget that there's been 5, 10, 20 years of technological development. In abundance, I talk about the environmental crisis of the 1890s if you read that, but the environmental crisis 1890s I did, but I don't remember this. was horse manure. Literally. Literally horse I got manure. You. So as people moved out of the rural areas into cities, they brought their motive power with them. And their motive power was the horse. So as people started moving into New York, into Chicago, into San Francisco, into you know Detroit, whatever it was, St. Louis, and they brought their horses, there was piles of horse shit so high that it was causing disease and runoff and it really problems. And the predictions were dire. It's like, We are predicting the number of people coming to cities with their horses. How are we going to deal with this? And what changed all that was the car. Mm -hmm. The car came along as a more advanced technology and got rid of this problem. So with the environmental and energy issues we have today, we have serious issues and and if we were to continue to burn the fossil fuels we do, it would get worse and worse and worse. However, my projection and that of other individuals, Ray Kurzweil, Elon Musk, so forth, is that we're heading towards a solar economy. And that solar will be so prevalent, so cheap, so available, so decentralized, that it will just be far more the driver for the economy. And so when you look at all of the metrics we're living in an amazing world. Over the last 100 years, the per capita income for every nation on the planet is more than tripled. The human lifespan is more than doubled. The cost of food has dropped 13-fold. The cost of energy has dropped 30-fold. Transportation, hundreds of fold. Communications, millions of fold cheaper. Case in point, this podcast. Right, sure. Uh, so uh, almost every possible conceivable metric, literacy has exploded around the planet. The cost of access to healthcare has exploded. We, romanticize the past and say, oh, in the good old days. But we forget that life back in the good old days was short and brutish and brutal. 80 hour work weeks just to survive.
0: Right, hammering things in a factory or something like that. Sure. So what do you think is the most promising solution for climate
1: change, solar? I think solar is for sure where I'm putting my bets. We get 8,000 times more energy hitting the surface of the Earth from the sun than we consume as a species in a year. There's amazing breakthroughs on the horizon for batteries, for solar production, and there's no reason why we can't go to an all electric or majority electric economy in this planet. You mentioned working in
0: factories, 80-hour work weeks, and things like that. What are your thoughts on the increasing effect of automation on society? I mean, do you think we're going to see dramatic changes in employment? And if so, how do we cope with that if we're automating?
1: Right, so we are gonna see dramatic changes in employment. AI and robotics will displace half of the jobs that we currently have, but they're also going to create new jobs that we currently can't conceive of, and we're going to merge with robots, we're going to merge with AIs in different ways, we're going to collaborate in different ways, we're going to create new kinds of capabilities we didn't have before. One of the things that's interesting is I checked a couple of years ago and looked at if there were any polls on the concept of do people love their jobs or do they hate their jobs? And it's a pretty staggering situation that something like 70% of Americans hate their jobs.
0: Oh, that's depressing.
1: Yeah, well, and it's not surprising either, right? People don't work the checkout at the local grocery store because that's what they dreamed about or don't clean toilets or stock boxes because that's what they wanted to do as a child. It's what the job they have and it's what's available to them to put food on their table and get insurance for their family. And so let those jobs go away. And how do we find a time where people can do what they love to do? And so I think that there's gonna be a transformation in what people do and what gives them gratification. I write a blog each week and anybody interested, if you go to dmandus.com, I put out a blog every Sunday. The next blog is gonna be on universal basic income. And so this concept that is being tested in governments around the world that everyone who is a citizen of a country gets a basic income. And we're going to demonetize the cost of living, meaning the cost of living is going to radically come down. One case in point that when we get to autonomous Ubers, having an autonomous Uber is going to be five times cheaper than owning a car. Good. Amen. So you don't need to own a car. You don't have to park it. You don't have to fuel it. You don't have to get insurance for it and you're getting it every place you go.
0: Sounds great to me. Sounds good to me. How many years until you think we see either a negative income tax or the UBI in the USA? Are you thinking 20 years? Are you thinking
1: 50 years? Do you have a timetable at all? You know, I don't for the US. We're seeing it being adopted around the world already, and we're gonna to start to see more and more countries bringing it on. I think the US, we may see some versions of it within the next 10 years. It's going to accelerate as unemployment goes up what I call technological unemployment. As that starts to go and people start to outcry and saying, you know, I want my job, the government's gonna have to do something about it. And UBI will have been proven and tested in different parts of the world already. It will be an easier onboarding process in the US at that point.
3: That's dot
2: com slash charm. Go to com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. What do you think in a world of lesser employment
0: or no employment because of AI, robotics, automation, what do you think constitutes a comfortable
1: or pleasant lifestyle for, at that point, will be the unemployed masses? Well, so... Interesting, right? I, I'm an engineer, and I look at boundary conditions. And in the boundary condition of where we're going over the next 20 or 30 years is the demonetization of the things that you and I pay for today. So the best education in the world will soon be free. You know, rather than go to MIT or Harvard or Stanford and spend 100 and 200 thousand dollars on tuition, you're going to get an education delivered by an AI to you. To anyone in your family, and that will be the best education you can possibly get. You can get a secondary education at a school if you want for socialization or things like that, but learning the knowledge is going to be best delivered by an AI that knows your passions, your abilities, and follows everything you do and gives you lessons throughout the day. Healthcare will be delivered by AI and robots effectively for free. There will be a time in the future where if you need some kind of surgery, the last thing you want is a human surgeon touching you. Oh, yeah, well, Right, where that robot's done it a million times perfectly. And so if we can see the demonetization of education, of healthcare, of cars, VR, VR and augmented reality, plus autonomous cars means you don't have to live in downtown Santa Monica if that's where your work is, where the real estate prices are ridiculous. Right. You can live an hour away or two hours away and commute by VR where the you know, house prices are one-tenth the cost. So all of a sudden, we're gonna change what it costs to live. And at the same time, the quality of life, You know, we forget that people under the poverty line in the United States today are living better than the kings and queens did 200 years ago.
0: Right, I remember a science teacher when I was in sixth grade said something like, who here would want to be a king in Egypt? And of course, everyone raised their hand, and he goes, what if you could never have toast again? Because you probably couldn't get a piece of toast in Egypt, it would be really hard. I mean, sure, someone could fire roast a piece of toast for you, but good luck, you know, making a s'more back then. And everyone was kind of like, I really love toast, you know, all the hands went down. On that same token, I mean, do you see technology Increasing or decreasing the gap between rich and poor, you talk about demonetization. Looking at something like planetary resources, you could make trillions of dollars, I would imagine, mining an asteroid. We might eliminate poverty entirely using AI automation, or perhaps that gap could increase
1: tenfold. Yeah, so, great question. And what I see is the following. We've lived in a world of have and have-nots, and it's been changing over time. So take you back a 1,000 years ago to Egypt once again, you know, where the pharaoh was the have and all the slaves, you know, 99.99999% of the population were the have-nots. And that's the way it was. It was a few people at the very top of the mountain, the top of the food chain, and the masses. And today, you know, it's changed where we have haves, we have a huge middle class haves, and then we have a diminishing number of have-nots. I want you to imagine in the near future we're going to have a world where every single person on this planet, every man, woman, and child, has their basic needs being met. Food, water, shelter, healthcare, education, energy, you know, whatever the Maslow's hierarchy of needs are here. So I imagine a world of haves and then some super haves. Super haves, right. So there'll still be people who have their own spaceship or whatever. Yeah, other asteroids live on other planets, living hundreds of years. But a world in which a mom in the middle of Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda, in the poorest parts of the world knows that her children have access to the world's best education, world's best healthcare, all the energy, clean water, tech access they want. And so that's the world we're heading towards. And I would rather have a world of, Halves and a few super haves than a world of have-nots and, and have. Sure, I definitely
0: agree with that. Who do you think's gonna get to Mars first? SpaceX, NASA, China?
1: I, I, it's put not my, gonna be I, NASA. I put my, no, I put my money on SpaceX for sure, no question. Will you go yourself, if given the opportunity? Oh yeah, I mean, I would love to go. I'm someone who wants to travel to space. I'd love to go to Mars, I'd love to go to the moon, I'd love to start an off-world. Colony, you know, I think there's sort of space falls into three groups the Lunites, the Mars colony first, and the people who want to build colonies in free space and not go into a gravitational well. I've spent my time on all, on thinking about all three weightlessness for that extended period of time.
0: I was talking with Mike Massimino, and he yeah. said, Look, after a while, you just you got to have that gravity. There's something about it. And, uh, Yeah,
1: well, in my version of a space colony, such as that of uh, Gerard K. O'Neill, it'd be a large rotating habitat. Oh, right. Great artificial gravity. Great artificial gravity,
0: yeah. Yeah. I saw you did an AMA on Reddit, or an AMA, and uh, you chastised a couple of people, jokingly, of course, about not using their linear mind to think. What does that mean? What do you mean by that?
1: So, we are, as humans, we evolved hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago in a world that is local and linear put yourself back in the savannas of Africa during the first humanoids. And back then, nothing changed, right? The world was pretty much the same generation to generation to generation. Nothing changed over a thousand years. And anything that affected you was local. It was within a day's walk. And so our brains, the wetware and hardware of our brains, are what I describe as local and linear. And of course, the world today is anything but that. Today, the world is global and exponential. So we all have a linear mindset, which means we tend to think tomorrow and the next day and next week and next month and next year will look like last year. But of course we're living during a time of greatest change and being agile to be able to have an exponential mindset, have a global mindset is very important these days. Looking at society evolving along with technology, do you think that society
0: will be able to evolve as quickly as technology? What type of adjustments Will we have to make as a society, say in the next 10 years?
1: So that's tough. We humans and society do not evolve as fast as tech. And in particular, there are structures in society, governments and religions, that tend to keep things as stable as possible. Humans, our very nature is we don't like change. We like to wake up in the morning and know the world is the same way as it was the night before. And when things change, Radically, it's very disrupting and very disconcerting. But when something improves tenfold, like digital cameras versus film cameras, or Uber versus taxis, there's a very rapid adoption curve, and then we adopt that as the new baseline. So the challenge is that we're going to have a lot of radical change, and it's going to disrupt a lot of industries, and that kind the of large-scale change on the governmental side does not occur. Yeah, for sure. What do you think will
0: permeate society faster? Something like smartphones, which seemed to take a while, but are now in the hands of everybody. I mean, my parents are looking to upgrade their iPhones at this point. Or self-driving cars, which may also take forever just because of regulation.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting, right? And that's an important point that iPhones, smartphones, once the spectrum was allocated by the FCC, there was no other regulatory hurdles to pass. Autonomous cars are hitting a few hurdles. One is pre-existing systems like taxi and rental car companies. But the adoption has been so extraordinarily rapid because the convenience is so high from Uber. And now what's going on is you've got companies like Google, like Uber, and like Tesla actually getting a lot of data. And they're getting data because they're doing it really smart. Like I own a Model S and a Model X, and both of those cars have, you know, autopilot on it. And when I I drive it on autopilot as much as I can, and when it's being driven on autopilot, it's uploading data to the network. You know, Tesla is gathering a huge amount of data with which to train its algorithms. And there will be a point at some time very soon, we're probably there now, that it is safer for the world at large to have autonomous cars driving than people. I agree with that. I mean, you you live in L.A., you've seen the driving here. And so I think ultimately there's going to be, while it's going to be hard to get the rules placed, there's going to be enough data to make the point that says by not passing the rules, you're harming people's lives. Right, it's going to become a clearly
0: more dangerous scenario. I predict that the gun nuts of the next 50 years are going to be the, I deserve to be able to drive my own car. Those are the people... Causing ninety nine like percent of the
1: accidents. When my eighty year old dad, who had this onset of Alzheimer's, you know, had his Florida driver's license automatically renewed. Yeah,
0: to take a driver's license away from somebody, there's a whole process. Basically, you have to be you have to have full power of attorney over that person yeah. to do it. It's impossible. What are you doing to educate your children? What will you be doing to make sure their education goes well? And and what are you going to do that most people are not doing with their kids right now?
1: Wow. So that's a great question. And I think early, my kids are five, so it's early for them. But I think about the notion that they're intercepting a very different world than I did. And they're intercepting a world that's changing at a much faster rate than I did. So, you know, I have a big debate and conversation always about, you know, tablet time, but becoming agile in using tech is gonna become the oxygen, the lingua franca, to mix metaphors here, of the future. And I have a hard time saying no, you shouldn't be using the technology. In fact, they probably, the stronger they are, the more agile they are, the better it's gonna be for them. But I've realized that, for me, there are three basics that have nothing to do with technology that I want for them. It's one, helping them find out what their passion is, and supporting that no matter what it is, a dear friend of mine's passion was video games when he was growing up, and he became one of the top video game designers on the planet. I mean, great, all right, so what is your passion? What is their passion? The second thing is uh, helping them remain curious. I ask my kids every day when I drop them off. you know I say to them, "Ask some good questions today," and then when I pick them up from school, I say, "What questions did you ask?" It's like just getting them into the mindset of asking questions as many questions as possible, and then grit. Which is making sure that they know if they want something to keep at it, to not give up. Why is that so important to you? It seems like a a dumb question on its face,
0: but you are a big mindset guy from reading your books. You love to talk about how you can do anything you put your mind to. Why is that such an important realization for not only kids, but for everyone?
1: Because as individuals, we're becoming so empowered today that mindset is the only restrictor. There's no lack of capital. You know, 15, to $20 billion in crowdfunding. There's more angel capital and venture capital and, and wait time before. So capital is not an issue. Access to knowledge is not an issue, right? With Google, you can know anything you want. Access to experts is not an issue. Access to computing power is not an issue. So if you say, what is the scarce resource? The scarce resource is the, the passionate, committed mind, the person who says, okay, I am going to make this happen, right? So all throughout Julian's book how to make a spaceship you'll see my absolute dogged pursuit of this passion of the the thousand times the x-prize concept died and my not giving up and she does an amazing job telling that story over and over and over again and you know uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation and your listeners wouldn't be listening to this had I had I given up and so ultimately mindset is, for me, the single most important thing that a person can have.
0: You didn't grow up with a big trust fund or anything like that, so why were you so confident you could just raise $10 million? And In fact, when you started the X Prize, I heard, and I read, you didn't have the $10 million to give away. You took an insurance policy, the whole in one insurance, yeah. along with 150 plus rejections from trying other ways to get it, of course.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I just was so confident in the idea because I was clear that it was a good idea. And if you have confidence in your ideas, and I also had done enough in the space world that I had built enough of a track record, you know, Julian starts with the eight-year-old Peter in the book and chronicles my time at MIT and creating a group called SED, Students of Exploration and Development of Space, which Jeff Bezos started the chapter at Princeton and, you know, then goes on to International Space University and my launch company and Zero Gravity Corporation, and eventually x I had done enough things where I, I knew what was the realm of doable, and I knew what was a good idea, and I was trying not to bullshit myself, and I had enough people who I bounced it off who got it and said yes, and so my confidence level grew and to the point where it wasn't a matter of, is this a good idea anymore? It's like, damn it, someone out there is gonna help me fund this thing. It's a good idea. It's gonna work, and when you can find that idea. And there's so many examples over and over again of companies that, you know, were overnight successes after 10 years of hard work. Sure.
0: Yeah. This podcast being one of them. I mean, we're no Facebook or anything, but 10 years as of next week, in fact, with this show. Awesome. Um, Nobody knew what podcasting was back then. And hopefully 10 more years, we'll be having these update to this conversation on my yacht or something. Awesome. You seem to have taken a much different route than many normal entrepreneurs in this type of space. See, you're laughing to yourself, because obviously we.
1: Well, um, you know, I don't know what a normal route for an entrepreneur is. Me neither. But... <laughs>
0: I think the, the tech space, the normal routine, is to go execute on some singular big idea, or maybe a few big ideas, yeah. like Elon. Well, first of all, you're dedicating your life right now, it seems, to helping other entrepreneurs facilitate and executing on their big ideas. Why did you go that route after
1: the original XPRIZE? Well, I mean, you have to understand, I have always lived and worked on multiple fronts, so I'm actively engaged in running probably seven companies right now. But I'm involved, typically, I know what I do well and what I enjoy, and I enjoy the coming up with the idea the the formulation of the vision, helping raise the capital, getting the team on board, and then typically taking a role as executive chairman and hiring a CEO. I don't love the management of the details of the people, the hiring, the firing, and so forth. And and so I partner with a great CEO. So here at XPRIZE, I'm a service executive chairman. I've got Marcus Shingles as CEO at Singular University. I'm co-founder with Ray Kurzweil. He's the chancellor, I'm the executive chairman there and Rob Nail is the CEO at Planetary Resources, Chris Lewicki is the CEO, and Eric Anderson and I are co-executive chairman, and so forth at Human Longevity, and my venture fund, Bold Capital Partners, and this new stem cell company called Cellularity. All of these cases, these are, I'm um, filled with the diversity and excitement of running those companies. They're all science fiction novels, right? They're all crazy moonshots. Um, and then there's a layer Separate from those, which is sort of XPRIZE, helping incentivize entrepreneurs, Singular University, helping to educate entrepreneurs, bold capital, investing in them. And then the work I do through Abundance 360 and my weekly blogs is really trying to help people see the way the world is changing. You know, my mission and purpose in life, I sort of wrote it out when I was at a Date with Destiny, Tony Robbins event. Tony is a dear friend of mine. And I realized that we're, undergoing a transformation as a species during our lifetimes. It's like going from lungfish to the land. We're undergoing a transformation. And my mission and my purpose is to inspire and guide this transformation both on and off the earth. We're going to transform how we raise our kids, how we govern, how we live our lives, where humanity exists in the solar system, in the universe. And it's happening now at an accelerating rate. And it's going to be a time which is both scary for many who don't want change and exciting for the fact of what we're becoming. We're becoming what I call a meta intelligence, a multi-human intelligence. And we're connecting in ways like never before. And so I think about this a lot. And I write about this. And I talk about this. And for me, it's the highest level of this video game we're playing. It's an exciting time to be alive.
0: If you had to pick between all of those different companies, I mean, if you had to achieve just one more significant milestone, what would it be?
1: Oh, goodness. That's not a fair statement. Hmm. I'm not going to choose between children. I have, I think, three basic thrusts, opening up space, extending the human lifespan, and solving grand challenges, right? So those are the three thrusts that I have. I squeeze a fourth in by helping entrepreneurs take moonshots, but- Anyway, that's um, like wishing for more wishes with the genie, yeah, right? I, I think so. That's yeah. that's yeah. So I wrote something called Peter's Laws long ago. I saw a copy of Murphy's Law on my business partner's wall, and I was like so pissed at it. I just like stared at it every day and it said, if anything can go wrong, it will. And I was like, that's just like the worst attitude you can possibly sure. have. And I went on my whiteboard and I wrote, If anything go can go wrong, fix it to hell with Murphy. And that became Peter's law. And then I started adding to it. My second law was when given a choice, take both. And so that just has iterated a few times.
0: Yep, and we just did that right here as well. So are you in between companies all day long? I mean, how do you kind of manage your time when it comes to that?
1: I manage it going between companies. I typically will spend, you know, yesterday, it was in Panama yesterday, this company called Cellularity, which is a stem cell company, was down there with Bob Haruri, Today was PhD ventures, tomorrow I'm at Singular University all day, so I'll go and rotate. But of course, when shit hits the fan, I'll focus on what the problems are, or when opportunities come up, I'll go and focus on that. And for me, it's a glorious life of ADD. Yeah, it sounds like it. Are are you doing that in Panama because of the laws in the
0: US, just too much of a pain in the...
1: Well, it's more that stem cell science is developed to the point that there's extremely strong evidence of its efficacy. but the laws that the FDA follows are not structured for stem cell science yet. Lots of studies going on. I went down for two reasons. One, there's a stem cell clinic called the Stem Cell Institute in Panama City, Panama, that we're looking at potentially rolling up in a stem cell roll-up that we're working on. And second, I went down to get my own treatment on my knee and my shoulder. So I was scheduled to have basically shoulder and knee surgery, which would have taken me out for a couple of months of full mobility. And I went and had Monday afternoon, two days ago now, stem cell injections into the cavities of my knees and my shoulders to look at rejuvenating the connective tissues there. And so I'll see in the next 60 days how that goes. The data is extremely positive. And if I can avoid going into surgery, great. Yeah, no kidding.
0: The shots in your kneecap sound painful, but it's a lot less painful than surgery. Yeah, no, and it wasn't
1: painful at all. I was taking video with my cell phone, they were injecting me in oh, wow. and uh, sharing it with my community.
0: Really, periscoping your uh, yeah, basically. knee injections? Yeah, How do you quantify success? You're involved in so many things. Is there a metric you use to definitively say, look, I'm making an impact with this?
1: Well, I think the metric is am I having fun? Really? Yeah, am I having fun? And then, I mean, each company has its metrics. Each company has key points. You know, early on is are you demoing the tech? Then is it are you raising the capital and are you attracting the clients? You know, my theme for 2017 is experimentation. So, rapid experimentation. Are we experimenting? What's the data we're collecting? What's the targets we're setting? Are we achieving those targets? But ultimately, am I enjoying myself? Do I feel like I'm making a difference?
0: Looking at it like that probably makes it an easier decision rather than second guessing all the metrics and all seven plus of your your current ventures. It probably simplifies things quite a bit. What's the ultimate goal for humanity here? Continued existence, expansion to the rest of the
1: galaxy slash universe, acquisition of data. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, we're undergoing a transformation as humanity. We're evolving. We're going from evolution by natural selection, which is Darwinism, to evolution by intelligent direction. We're rapidly changing what it means to be human. And I think we're creating AI, we're creating new forms of life. We are literally writing genomes of new life forms. We're beginning the ability to edit our own genomics with CRISPR-Cas9 technology. And we're going to become a new species. And it's shocking to me the timeline that I see, which is a few decades, 30 years at the most. Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity in, you know, 2029. He also talks about the notion that in the early 2030s, we're going to create the ability to interface the human cortex with the cloud such that we're going to be able to expand our memory, expand our cognitive capabilities. You know, our brain is very limited. Our neocortex has 300 million pattern recognizers, 100 neurons each. And when you use that for memorizing things, you've used it up. But we offload a lot of that, right? On my my cell phone are all the emails and phone numbers and so forth. So we're transforming. And I think we're going to become, you know, you as a human are a collection of 10 trillion human cells. Each one of your cells is a life form, but it makes you in a connected form. And I think of each of us as humans as individual life forms that are about to become connected into a meta intelligence. And I think we're going to be conscious on a brand new level. And I think that's again, we're building the backbone with the internet and we're the sensors that we're connecting, creating and connecting into our brains in this next decade. I know so many startups working on brain-computer interface. It's an extraordinary time. Yeah, I can't wait for some of that stuff. As a language
0: learner, I was speaking with some of these startup folks, and they said, yeah, you're learning Chinese? That's going to be a huge waste of your time in a few years. I hope you're having fun doing it, because in yeah. five, ten years, you'll be able to, quote-unquote, learn Chinese in minutes. You'll just have no need
1: to do well, it. Well, you'll speak English, and it'll come out Chinese in the in the listener's ears. Right, exactly. Right? We have already hearing aids that yeah. can translate. I saw that, and I wondered how well that works. Because,
0: of course, the second I posted that online, people went, oh, that'll never work with Vietnamese because the verb goes at the end, or it'll never work (laughs) with this. And I'm just thinking, this is society underestimating AI to the point where, just like my dad, when I told him about Yahoo in the 90s, he said, nobody needs that, there are libraries everywhere. Yeah. And I thought to myself, this is my dad's comment all over again, oh well, you know, we won't need that for this and people are gonna be bilingual or this is gonna happen. And if you don't think this AI can figure out that the verb goes at the end of a German sentence, then uh, completely different pages here. You hang out with top people all the time, and by hang out I mean work with and, and fraternize with. What are a few traits you see in common? I know everybody works hard, I know everyone reads a lot, but. Is there anything, maybe even some dark stuff? You know, are we all scared children that have this crazy desire for power are they competitive
1: <laughs> to a sick degree? I think, and I wrote about in my book, Bold, I am honored to have as friends, investors, and board members, folks like Larry Page and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. And, and I write about them and others. And I think to a large degree, they're all massive optimists, really optimists about the future, and they are about rapid experimentation, about just continually experimenting and trying things and not pre guessing They're about doing audacious moonshots. You know, when you've reinvented an industry like PayPal for Elon, like what do you do next? They're also driven by passion. Probably the most important thing is they're passion-driven individuals. And they're creating stuff that they would love to see created and that they want. And it's that level of passion, of grit, of not giving up. And of course, there's a good amount of luck in all of this, but they're all incredibly smart. So that's a reality amongst all of them. The optimism and the
0: passion are are interesting. You don't hear about the optimism as much. It's probably not as sexy as, uh, well, you know, I grind and I do this and I'm always, it doesn't have as much of a cool factor. To be optimistic necessarily, it's more hyper driven, is what we hear about most of the time. How often do you genuinely go offline and take a break and not look at anything? And at
1: night when I go to sleep.
0: Oh, when you're unconscious. (laughs) Sure. Okay.
1: So every day for several hours. Oh man, it's really tough for me. That's one of my biggest challenges is shutting down. I was in Panama, as I said, and I flew yesterday home in a seven and a half hour flight, and you know, I basically spent six and a half hours doing email and I allowed myself to sleep for an hour just so I'd be a little bit refreshed when I I got to my five-year-olds. But I aspire to doing less, but I'd be bullshitting myself if I said, I've really done that. I'm on seven by 24 by 365. And I've got, you know, at some point I got to say, actually, you love it. So stop complaining about it. Sure, But the thing that is the counterbalancing force is I do put down my phone and my computer to go and play with my boys. So it'll be an hour in the morning, and an hour when they come back from school, and I will do my damnedest. Like, you know, I'm rushing back after our conversation right now to go and get them from school. What is next for you? Are you gonna put more irons in the fire? So I think I'm always putting more irons in the fire and I'd be bullshitting myself if I said I don't. So I expect to be starting one or two companies a year, investing in a dozen companies each year. What's the next X Prize or X Prizes? Oh, wow. We have some great X Prizes. ANA Airlines is funding an X Prize called the Avatar X Prize. Can you create a robot that you can plug your consciousness into? You can see and hear through the robot's eyes and ears. You can move and walk around through the robot and you can project your consciousness into a village in Tanzania and do a surgery. So it's disintermediating the future of travel. Sure, and you can explore other planets that are toxic to humans or too dangerous. that's a great one. With Caterpillar working on an Iron Man X-Prize, the president of Caterpillar basically came down with ALS and, you know, he's going to have reduced mobility. We said, could we build, could there be an XPRIZE to create sort of an Iron Man suit that would allow a person with ALS to actually open the door and get around and communicate and so forth. So a lot of interesting technologies along those lines. We just launched a water abundance XPRIZE. Can you take water out of the humidity of the air in India and give people 20 liters of clean drinking water? and a women in safety Prize. Can you create an Prize for a technology device that allows a young girl to walk around the most dangerous cities of India safely?
0: Oh wow, and it's funny, because there's not really a whole lot of, it has to be this way and do this. It's, you're leaving this up largely to the creativity of the people involved. That is what I think, at least from reading your books, it looks like makes the magic, because you can really find ideas that, you can't find these ideas with constraints attached. Yes. It has to be wide open. Can you tell us something that's true that you believe that just nobody, almost nobody agrees with you on?
1: Well, two things. One is that we're living in a virtual existence that I think for sure we're an nth generation virtual world. We are gonna create a next virtual world the AI's that we, in a video game, that we're playing in a, in a virtual existence as one. I believe that, and it's not, it wouldn't change anything I do, The second thing is that we're about to transform into a meta-intelligence, that we're about to interconnect billion people on the planet and become conscious at a different level. That is a future of the next 30 years.
0: So just to clarify, you think that what we're doing now is we're maybe a simulation or some sort of virtual existence that another civilization has created?
1: We just don't see it. It's like Westworld. Yeah. We're these robots that think we're in reality. And we will create the next iteration of that. You know, I think a lot of interesting have come to that conclusion. AI and virtual reality is gonna get to the point where it's indistinguishable from reality. And so it's not just a VR, a virtual existence, it's that we're in nth generation, in words, one generation begets the next, begins the next. I think of the world that way, no one needs to agree with me, it doesn't change the way I see or do anything, but that's my belief.
0: Can I ask why you think that? I have heard that before, but only from sci fi writers and things like that.
1: Oh, because I just see that's where we're going. And if that's where we're going, then, you know, in a universe 14 and a half billion years old, I believe life is ubiquitous in the, in the universe. I think it's a force of nature. And uh, we're not the first ones to have reached this level of technological advancement. So we could be biological AI. Or something along those lines. Or virtually,
0: right? Or just not here at all. Right, where is here? We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Really interesting episode. Went all over the place with that. I really love talking about future tech how society will evolve with this future tech or not, Uh, and especially the concepts of artificial intelligence, space travel, colonization, this stuff is all just super fascinating for me, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Of course, great big thank you to Peter Diamandis. The book is titled How to Make a Spaceship, the most recent one about him by Julian Guthrie. Also, he's written Bold and Abundance. We'll link all those up in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Peter on Twitter, we'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And remember, you can tap your phone screen, you should see the show notes pop right up on your phone, and just about every app that plays podcasts. I'm also on Twitter. I post a lot of things that never make it to the show. Articles, insights, other ways to engage with me and producer Jason. I'm at the Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamps and Art of Charm live program details are at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Man, the bootcamp is so rewarding for me especially because of just how far it takes people. I love seeing the results people have over the months and years after they come through. It is truly life changing. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but look, I invite you to see for yourself. If you wanna check it out, get in touch with us. We'll get you some info, you can plan ahead. We sell out a few months in advance, so I recommend just, you know, if you're thinking about it, dip your toe in the water. And speaking of dip your toes in the water, if you want to join our AOC challenge, check out the slash challenge, or if you're here in the States, you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. This challenge that we have is about improving your networking, improving your connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. I also do regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and last but not least, it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.
2: Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at the Art of